James chapter 5 and place a finger there. Um, but before we begin today's uh, message, um, I wanted to give you guys uh, a very brief update on the Jackson family. Um, many of you know that Pastor Nick is in California uh, ministering to his mother, Rita, who has visited here several times. Many of you know Rita. Uh, Rita had a significant stroke last Monday, um, and yesterday, um, no, Friday, no, it was yesterday, um, Stephanie joined him down in California. Um, the prognosis is not good. Um, the doctors are doing what they can to um, alleviate her pain. Uh, but as of 5 p.m. yesterday, uh, they did take her off the ventilator and are, are just kind of counting down the minutes at this point. Um, so please continue to be in prayer for the Jackson family. Um, and actually, I'm going to invite Rich, um, one of our elders, to come up and pray over them real quick. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we lift up Rita to you, and, uh, and we just feel assured that uh, she's in your comforting arms and, and your love and your grace, and she's experiencing that right now, Heavenly Father, and uh, that her outcome is, is totally uh, in your hands. And we lift up the Jackson family and uh, give them peace and comfort uh, through this time of, uh, of sorrow and, and perhaps grief, but uh, continued prayer uh, for miracles. Heavenly Father, uh, we especially pray that uh, you equip Nick uh, to be able to work uh, with his father, who is especially struggling uh, uh, during this time uh, to lose uh, uh, someone that's been, been a part of you, been, been part of one flesh. Uh, Heavenly Father, for decades, uh, uh, just comfort and give Nick the right words to bring priests and, and love to his heart. And Heavenly Father, we just pray that uh, you could equip Nick and, and Steph Stephanie to uh, uh, to answer questions uh, for the little grandchildren and all the grandchildren in the Jacksons family to to kind of help them understand what's going on here. But uh, Heavenly Father, we're just so glad that uh, Nick and Stephanie, uh, that, that you're alive in their hearts and they just find the, the glory and the love and the grace uh, through this experience. And now we pray this uh, through our Savior, Jesus Christ, to you. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you, Rich. Kind of an emotionally heavy day. We started with laughter and now a somber reminder of just the, the impermanence of life. Um, guys, there's a really bad echo. Up. That works. I'll just talk loud. <laughs> More laughter. No, somber. Um, I have 30 minutes to do a 45-minute sermon. So we're going to do this really fast. We've been working our way through James, uh, which is primarily how we teach here at Timberline. We teach through books of the Bible at a time. Um, and we started this, this series, actually we started it in Matthew. 
um, and the Sermon of the Mount and looked at how James is really kind of a commentary on that sermon. Uh, the, the, the prime focus in James's letter is to provide encouragement to believers, to Christians, towards godly living. What does it mean to live out our faith, our real, genuine faith, in a visible way? Kind of the highlight of the, of the epistle is from James chapter 1, verse 22, when, when James wrote, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. This citizenship that James is calling to is, is part of our identity, and it should affect all aspects of our life in, in the way we treat each other, the way we speak, the way we even view each other, in the way we make plans and rely upon God for his timing and his purposes and his wisdom, and in the way we view the allures of the world that would draw us away from the obedience that real faith exhibits. Today we start the fifth chapter in James, and our text today is super uplifting, full of encouragement and exhortation, and captures the essence of the joyous, abundant material life we are called to expect as Christians. (laughs) Not really. No, today we're going to talk about rot, about corrosion, flesh-eating fire, and slaughter. I bet you're excited now. I seem to frequently draw the short straws when it comes to the preaching texts. But that's okay. Because my goal this morning is, even in the midst of these startling six verses that we're going to look at, we're going to catch a glimpse into this amazing economy of the kingdom of God. And it's pretty cool. And and, and it should, and it ought to, and it will bring us encouragement. So hang in there with me. Doom and gloom, but it's going to turn, I promise. Today we're going to see how real faith resists the allure of material idolatry and pursues God's justice in his eternal economy. That's a mouthful, but we're going to break that down. I'm excited about this passage, so I would invite you to stand with me now as we read from James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. We stand here at Timberline because we know that God's word comes with his full authority, and we want to treat it with the respect that it is due. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the inspired, living, breathing word from your heart and your soul and your mind. And we, we want to acknowledge that we are hopeless to understand it 
without your divine providence. Father, so we would ask right now that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would use me as poor a vessel as I am to, to do my best to communicate the, the tremendous joy we have even in the midst of this kind of a text, Father. We thank you and we praise you because you are good and you will accomplish your plan for all of our lives. We commit every second of this message to you. In Jesus' name, amen. A little bit of context real quick. Last week, Pastor Nick walked us through the end of chapter 4, where James admonishes the believers to pause and consider our presuppositions and our plans, to reflect on our tendency to forget God as we make decisions, as if somehow we are in control, rather than living out our faith in total reliance and obedience upon God. James rightly identifies such behavior as arrogance. And our God opposes the proud, the arrogant, but gives grace to the humble. James's point is visible faith is a humble faith. We know from this letter already that there were significant tensions between the rich and poor in James's original audience. Many Christians at this time were poor and being exploited by the rich, like we learn in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Then in our text, James addresses you rich with some of the strongest language found in the New Testament. It's important we identify who James is writing to in this text. I believe, as do most of the commentaries that I've read, that James is talking about non-believing rich. Here are my reasons. First, James at no point refers to these rich as brothers or sisters or fellow believers, terms that he has used liberally throughout the letter thus far. He does not use it once in this passage. Second, there's no call for repentance. All we have is unremitting condemnation and absolute denunciation from God. All throughout the letter, James is admonishing Christians to repent, for believers to acknowledge their sin and return to a real faith, but not here. So if these six verses are directed at an audience who in all likelihood would, would never receive the message, what's the point? So James is using a common rhetorical device used throughout the Old Testament, like when God would send a prophet to Israel over here to pronounce judgment against this pagan nation over here. Israel got the message meant for them, but it was for Israel to acknowledge and to rightly know our God is just, that he loves us, and this is what his character looks like. The same thing is happening here in our text. So, what do we do with this? James pulls no punches expressing this warning in the most dire of terms. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James invites the rich to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon them. But what is their crime? Is it wrong to be rich? Well, no. There's nothing wrong with receiving the material blessings from our Heavenly Father. 
We are supposed to save for the future. We're supposed to be good stewards of the things that he's given us. So long as we are seeking God's plan and wisdom in the process instead of our own presuppositions or, or our own insecurities or our own fears. So what did these rich do to deserve this level of condemnation? James is telling us that they are guilty of idolatry, specifically material idolatry. When something or someone takes God's rightful place in our lives, that person or thing becomes an idol. If you're taking notes, which all of you are because you're good Christians, why is that laughter? Because you're taking good notes, we're going to look at three specific warnings from James. He identifies three specific ways material idolatry is expressed in this text. And those three are hoarding, extravagance or excess, and injustice. So the first one, hoarding. Verse 3 ends, you have laid up treasure in the last days. The picture here is of stockpiling wealth just for the sake of accumulation. These rich have no chance of using or spending this massive amount of wealth that they have accumulated. And so it just sits wherever it's stored, whether it's in a mansion or in a bank vault or in some kind of storehouse. Instead of putting these God-given blessings to use by lifting others out of poverty, these rich ascribe to the mantra, more is better. This is a hugely important warning for us living in the richest nation in the world. We live in a society where accumulation, expansion, upgrading is seen as a good in its own right. Amassing money and possession is commended. It's one of the ways we as a culture measure success. More is better. More expensive car, bigger house, better school for my kids, bigger, fancier church. No one's immune. We all must be on guard against this deception. James is telling us pursuing wealth just for its own sake is wasteful, ungodly, and will end in judgment. But it's also unfulfilling. King Solomon, the richest human to ever live, wrote in Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is all vanity. The heart issue here is ingratitude. A heart lacking in thankfulness will collect and collect in an attempt to fill the God-sized hole created inside of us. And it will bring these rich, hungry people zero satisfaction. Because in the end, verse 2 says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Vanity. Pointless vanity. All the riches in the world, all the wealth, all the nice things are but dust in God's eternal economy. Is it wrong to enjoy nice things? No, of course not. Our Heavenly Father delights in blessing. We are supposed to enjoy His blessings. 
But we need to clearly understand an ungrateful heart will amass or covet impermanent earthly wealth, be it stuff or a fat bank account. Without giving God the glory he's due, this is the trap, this is the snare. These things that are meant to bless us replace God and they become idols. This wasted stuff will declare the guilt of the wasteful rich before the perfect, righteous, holy God. Because he alone is worthy of that worship and that pursuit. The second way this idolatry is expressed is through extravagance or, or excess. Verse 5 says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Meaning these rich have used the blessings given to them by God to satisfy their own earthly passions, their own earthly pleasures. Now, to reiterate, James is not saying we cannot enjoy the good things of this world that God gives us through his grace and mercy. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4, we are to receive every good thing because it is from God. What James is talking about is an ungodly attitude that sees us as the center of everything. Again, take a moment to reflect on the messages constantly bombarding us in our society, in our culture. You deserve this. You're worth it. Go ahead, treat yourself. You cannot deny the comforts of an American lifestyle includes a destructive, egocentric, man-centric, self-centered morality meant to push us ahead of other people for our own comfort. The root of this material idolatry is selfishness. A pointed example of this is the rich young ruler in Luke 18 who asked Jesus how he might inherit eternal life. After displaying his immense self-righteousness, how he thought he deserved eternal life because of following the law, Jesus pops his bubble by saying this in verse 22. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. The rich young ruler couldn't do it because he was wealthy. And Jesus' response meant denying himself. The rich James is addressing in this passage used their wealth and status to selfishly satisfy themselves and all their earthly passions. So they consume and indulge and spare nothing for themselves. For what, though? The rest of verse 5 says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Like turkeys on a farm in summer, living it up, getting nice and plump. These rich have gotten fattened only to be slaughtered and devoured at Thanksgiving and Christmas. Their idolatrous, selfish hearts will be the evidence against them during the day of judgment. Third, third material idolatry expressed in our text gets expressed through injustice. These rich become so 
by exploiting, withholding wages, and defrauding those who work for them, those who have a direct who they have a direct responsibility to care for through some kind of financial arrangement or, or, or working relationship. Leviticus 19.13 says, The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night and morning, until morning. Meaning you give what you owe, what you agreed to pay at the end of the day. Withholding that daily wage from that worker meant that worker went without daily bread. This laborer, though he worked for an agreed-upon uh, agreed amount, went home empty-handed, which means he went hungry, which means his family went hungry. What sort of person would be okay treating his fellow man this way? How could anyone be okay with this? These rich care nothing for their fellow man. Now, now we can gloss and polish this and say that they lack love. But let's call the absence of love what it really is. Hatred. Pure and simple. Only a heart filled with hate could exploit someone in this way. And just like the other two examples come with evidence against them, here we see that the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And not just the cries, but even the wages themselves cry out against, declaring that these rich, practicing injustice, are guilty. This is going to sting a little. You may not be guilty of withholding wages, or guilty of fraud against someone you owe money. But we need to reflect on our responsibility as consumers. To think about the kinds of companies we are supporting and how they treat their workers in countries that do little or nothing to protect, to protect, to protect against fraud and corruption. Our ignorance is not a reasonable defense. Our purchasing habits could very well be enabling this kind of abuse to continue. And we need to think clearly about how we, as consumers, will be held accountable, will be held accountable before our righteous, holy God. As James finishes his concluding indictment, he saves the strongest charge for the end. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. There's no reason to believe this was meant to be purely figurative to James's audience. Wickedness and explo exploitation could directly have led to loss of life, loss of food for a family, starvation. Very real examples. But it's also possible for the lifestyle of the wealthy to indirectly lead to the harm and eventual death of, of others through these idolatrous means. All three groups, the hoarder, the extravagant, the unjust, they're all guilty by their ingratitude, selfishness, and hatred. And they all stand accused. They all stand condemned. And they all stand judged in this text. Whew. Okay. Okay, Ben, let's get to the encouraging part. 
Now that there's so much thickness in this room, you can cut it. Where's the good news? What do these warnings reveal about God's economy? What does it say about visible faith? What's the point of these warnings? What does it say? A lot, actually, and it's really cool. How do we avoid material idolatry? By correctly identifying the root sin in these rich, we can see what God values, where he finds worth, and invest accordingly. We begin back in the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus sets the foundational truths concerning God's economy. God has an economy. Heaven has an economy. We probably should teach more on that. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Catch this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice the relationship between treasure and heart. Clearly, Jesus isn't talking about gold and silver. He's saying the condition of your heart will determine where your treasure accumulates. If your heart is set on worldly things, know your treasure will not last. It will be impermanent. It will be earthly treasure. The fruit of our heart will reflect whom we serve. Jesus continues in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for he will, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And we've seen serving money results in ingratitude, selfishness, and hatred. Serving money is really self-serving. Telling God that he is not Lord. Elevating yourself to that position. Jesus continues by telling us not to worry about how we will be taken care of, which directly contradicts our materialistic Western thinking when it comes to pretty much all matters of finance. Again, Jesus didn't say don't save. He's actually asking a question. He's asking, who do you think is in control? Are you trusting God when making your plans? like Pastor Nick preached on last, last week in James chapter 4? Or are you trusting yourself in your plans? Verse 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, the things you need to survive, like your food, like your clothing, like your shelter, all of these things will be added to you. So how do we seek first the kingdom of God? How do we invest in God's kingdom? What's our takeaway from this passage in James? If it's not directly addressed to us, because I don't know of anybody in here who's filthy, stinking rich. If it's not directed at us, what are we supposed to do with this? How do we keep ourselves from the allure of material idolatry? Well, we've looked at the heart conditions of you rich when it comes to materialism, so let's see how visible faith acts and responds in God's economy. The wasteful hoarder possesses an ungrateful heart, right? We already, we already talked about that. You might think that the response to this would be then thankfulness, but I disagree. I believe it's contentment. 
This runs extremely counter to our culture, pushing us to accumulate more and more and more. In God's economy, we practice contentment. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4.10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you, he's talking to the church, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Why does Paul know how to be content? Because he knows he's not in control. He admits it several verses later in verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Who supplies my needs? Me? Nope. I might work, but God provided the work. I might have a job, but God gave me health to get up that morning to do the job. God provided the boss that would actually pay me my wages. Who actually provides? My God does. Real faith trusts and acknowledges God is in control and supplies all of our needs. And this real faith is expressed, is expressed as visible faith in our contentment, in our ability to say, I have enough. Well, it's a hard thing to say sometimes. And this keeps us from envy. Citizens of God's kingdom practice contentment for all the things given to them by God's grace. The extravagant rich living a lavish lifestyle has a selfish heart. How does kingdom economics contradict this trap, this, this allure? You might guess it would be the opposite. Instead of selfishness, it would be selflessness. Man, that's a lot of S's. Selflessness. But selflessness is a byproduct of a heart condition known as gratitude. James 4.3 says, you ask but do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on who? Yourself. When we don't get our way, bitterness and resentment start knocking on the door. But James says, you don't receive because your motives are garbage and selfish. Just, just straight up. The grateful heart acknowledges every good gift is from God, like 1 Timothy 4 says, and responds with praise. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks just when everything is going your way. No, no, that's not what it says. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. A heart consumed with gratitude has no room for selfishness, has no room for selfish ambition or desire. Citizens of God's kingdom express gratitude for all of the material things given to them through God's grace. And finally, the unjust rich cheating and exploiting others has a heart 
filled with hate. 1 John 3.15 says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. It sounds so pithy to say, well, obviously the opposite of this is to love. So we just need to love instead of hate, right? But again, I would challenge us to go deeper to the source of love, to the God who is love. We resist hate by falling deeply in love with the ultimate, supreme, holy God of the universe. By getting to know him, his goodness, his kindness, his faithfulness, his mercy, his generosity, his love, and his justice. By hiding his word in our heart, like it says in Psalm 119. And as we do this, as we grow deeper in love with God, we will naturally crave investing in his kingdom, in the things that bring him joy, in the places where he sees value. The hateful, rate, the hateful rich is only worried about investing in his kingdom. But real faith is concerned about investing in eternal treasure and views material blessings as an opportunity to expand God's kingdom. Check this out. To the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. This church it was a group of believers who were losing their passion for God's kingdom. Jesus says this to them. Chapter 3, verse 13, 13, 15, sorry, Revelation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And what is this golden garments Jesus is talking about in Revelation? It's himself. His righteousness a heart that hungers and thirsts for the righteousness that only comes from the saving faith in Jesus Christ. A faith that, that submits to his rule and his authority and throws itself at his mercy. This is what Jesus is inviting us to invest in. A relationship with him. When that investment is a priority, all of these other relationships start working out the way they're supposed to. A heart seeking first God's kingdom will overflow with love for his fellow man as he invests in the things that are permanent and eternal. As he displays integrity for how he spends the material things given to him as a result of God's grace. A kingdom citizen views the material blessings from God with, with contentment, with gratitude, and as a desire to invest in eternal treasure, the righteousness found only in Jesus Christ. Our final glimpse into kingdom economics in this passage shows us what's at stake. What's at stake? 
our inheritance. That's what an investment is, right? You invest hoping to see results eventually. Our final glimpse comes from the last part of our passage. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Why? Why? Why did the righteous person not resist? Because he trusts God's justice. Make no mistakes, brothers and sisters. Make no mistake. Our God is a God who loves justice and exercises it perfectly. In his timing, not ours. In Malachi 3, we receive a prophecy concerning the coming of Jesus. And at his arrival, judgment will be swift. And this judgment will be against some pretty, pretty big obvious sins here. Against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, and against the liars. Oh, and, get, and against those who oppress the hired workers and the poor. Right in there with the sorcerers, guys. Our Lord of hosts is not deaf to the cries of the oppressed. And he will exercise perfect justice. To the oppressed in James's audience, this brings great hope and comfort because God deeply cares for the exploited. To those of us who wonder why it seems like wicked men seem to prosper, this reminds us all the hoarding, all the lavish, all the hateful wealth in the world will not save a single person from the eternal justice of our perfect holy God. You bring that treasure to God on the day of justice, and it's dust, meaningless, vanity. This is what the rich young ruler in Luke 18 didn't understand. He wanted eternal life but didn't trust God's economic justice. He walked away before hearing the good news several verses later in verse 29 when Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life, inheritance. Where are you investing? Paul wrote in Philippians, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In chapter 3, verse 18, James writes, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Why did the righteous person not resist? Because he's sowing peace. He, he, he understands the harvest is going to be so much better than anything that we could anticipate in this life. He does not resist the sinful rich because he knows God is the one who will resist them. It's not his job. 
He trusts in the Lord of the harvest. He's investing in an eternal inheritance, the righteousness that only comes through Jesus Christ. This is the inheritance of kingdom citizens seeking to invest in something that will last forever. All the glitter and sparkle of this world, which has trapped and ensnared so many people, will be the evidence used against them. And James is saying, don't go that way. Don't be envious of the rich. Don't don't make plans for the future without consulting me, as he says in in chapter 4. This is what eternal economy looks like. Not fluctuating markets, not savings accounts. This is what lasts. Real faith resists the allure of material idolatry and pursues God's justice in his eternal economy. So there is hope here to the oppressed, to to those who wonder, God, when is your justice going to show up? God, why are the rich prospering? God, what am I doing wrong if I'm not receiving all these blessings? This gives us hope. This gives us assurance that, that what we want to, what we should desire to invest in will last for an eternity. And this, this is a hard one, guys. This is a hard one for our culture. And so I would ask you to take a few minutes before we take communion. I would ask you to just pray and search your heart right now. And ask yourself, is there covetous in my, covetousness in my heart? Where are my priorities when it comes to my bank account and my retirement and my future? Whose kingdom am I investing in? Because only one will remain. Why don't you bow your heads for a moment?